0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and hope everybody has a very happy Hanukkah. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Lawmakers shaped an $886 billion National Defense Authorization Act and have an emergency supplemental in the works after a measure for Desperately needed aid for Ukraine has failed. The Senate has cleared nearly 700 officers, but not four stars for their new jobs. The GOP House margin has dropped to three votes. Worries grow that Russia might actually win in Ukraine. Israel's war on Hamas grinds on as criticism mounts and lessons from the repeated Houthi attacks on the USS Kearney. In the Red Sea. Joining us today to review the week in Washington and around the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute think tank, Michael Herson, the president of American Defense International and one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, uh, who also hosts the season's finest holiday party, former Pentagon uh, Europe chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security and the co host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the transatlantic alliance, former Pentagon. Comptroller, Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies, among his many affiliations, joining us from sunny Berlin, and our producer, Chris Cervillo, a retired United States Navy commander, who is also the co-host of our Cavus Ships podcast and uh, the co-founder of the Provision Advisors. Uh, PR firm. Everybody, uh, welcome back. It's a big group, but it's a big news week. Uh, a lot of it centering around every madness going on in Washington. Uh, Michael, uh, again, terrific holiday party. Uh, it is a highlight uh, of the season. Uh, so congratulations to you, Vicky, and your whole team uh, for putting uh, that on. Uh, as we were convening uh, at Eastern Market, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act pretty much uh, came together. It's a 3% increase in um, uh, and, uh, you know, $886 billion, which is a nice nice piece of change. 5.2% proposed uh, pay raise uh, in there for military members. Strong Taiwan language, uh, money for uh, nuclear technology, as well as the ban on Chinese batteries. Kind of walk us through what's what's interesting and your take on this whole measure.
1: Well, uh, look, it's, it's been a long road. Uh, we expected the NDA to be filed uh, last week. So as you point out, it was filed late Wednesday night. After several delays, and most of the delays really were sitting around uh, AUKUS and and FISA. The Senate is going to consider the bill first, uh, so they will take it up early next week, and then the House will take it up midweek after the Senate passes it. But uh, the House will have to take it up under suspension of the rules, which will require a two-thirds majority of the House to pass it. So I do believe it will pass, but there's no guarantee that it will because you have a lot of the conservatives now uh, in the chaos caucus, very upset with the NDAA, uh, primarily because it does not include a lot of things that they were able to put in on the floor, uh, which were poison pills for the Democrats, like you know the Republican provision to block DOD's abortion travel policy uh, and uh, language that would bar funds for gender transition and hormone therapies for transgender troops. Uh, however, uh, there is um, language in the bill that does... Uh, The endorsement of critical race theory at the DoD and requires the comptroller to perform a review of workforce uh, in the DoD dedicated to diversity, equity, and inclusion program uh, policy. But um, you know the there were some things that uh, were interesting that fell out. For example, um, there was a provision in the House to create a space national guard uh, that did fall out in favor of a a study. Uh, There. um, was a uh, provision in the House remember, to eliminate uh, the Pentagon's uh, Cape, uh, the Cost Assessment and uh, Program Evaluation Office, that also fell out. Uh, but I think the big news here is on August because that was one of the things that really held held it up. And after you know exhaustive negotiations back and forth, um, the you know the submarine transfer authorization wouldn't take effect now until a year after the NDAs pass. You know because Wicker had blocked. Uh, the authorization initially an attempt to secure the passage of about three and a half billion dollars in submarine industrial based funding in the emergency right. supplemental spending bill. Right. So this sunrise provision gives Congress time to pass the supplemental spending bill that contains that money, uh, which as we'll talk about later, you know, is hung up in negotiations. Now FISA has become a problem as well. So it was, it was kind of on again, off again, but uh, they did agree in this final package to a four month extension of Section Seven O Two of the Foreign Intelligence. Surveillance Act, which, which you know, enables U.S. intelligence community to collect, analyze and share you know, foreign intelligence information on threats abroad. Conservatives are very upset about that. Uh, there's two competing bills to reform uh, FISA, uh, one by Jim Jordan and the Judiciary Committee, another by Mike Turner and the Intelligence Committee. And those are going to be taken up also uh, next week. Uh, to see which ones will get the support. Most people think that Mike Turner's bill will be the one to get support, but that still would have to not only pass the House, but also uh, pass the Senate and then hopefully be dealt with uh, after this
0: um, uh, extension expires in April. Uh, Fascinating. Uh, indeed, to watch uh, all the mechanics of this. I mean, what I found uh, encouraging, including at your reception, is, you know, on an off-the-record basis, the real bipartisan understanding of anybody who's serious in national security and how to move the ball forward and sort of the the frustration that folks had from both parties with, um, you know, stupidity uh getting in the in the in the way of that uh or or you know like naked politics getting in the way of that kind of progress. Um uh, dov, let me uh bring you in for your quick take uh, on this as a former comptroller and what do you make of the you know overall measure and you know what you liked about it and what
2: you didn't. Well uh first of all what I liked about it is that there's a bill. Um at least uh the prospect of a bill. Uh, I think that it will get enough votes in the House. I mean the Senate really jammed the House this time because you don't go through the rules committee. You've got none of those usual rules, um, but uh, between the moder- between most of the Democrats and most of the Republicans, I think they will get the required two thirds. Um, I think the compromise on AUKUS, given that uh, Roger Wicker uh, comes from a state that builds submarines, uh, is probably as good as you could have gotten, um, and so that was a good outcome. and And frankly, in many ways, the the, the out the biggest outcome. Uh, was that Tupperville uh finally allowed everybody up to four-star level to to get promoted. Um, the problem then still is that the uh, Chiefs, uh, or in the case of uh the Marines, the ACMAC, the assistant commandant, they're still doing two jobs. And it's wearing them out. Uh and uh so that's that still remains a huge problem. Uh the the fact that uh, the abortion stuff didn't pass uh, pass muster, and the fact that the uh, uh, the transgender stuff didn't pass muster, well, you know what? That's that's not really for defense bills, and so I'm not too upset about that. the The DEI uh, provision was obviously a sop to the right. The right, you know, the extreme rights never satisfied, but they had to give something. To the uh, to the right wing, and so they gave them that. I think, on balance, it's a pretty good bill. Um, Comptroller, from what I understand, is actually going to be looking at this whole DEI issue. Um, Mike McCord uh, is is a terrific guy. I'm surprised it went to him and not to somebody else. Um, But uh, you know, the comptroller folks are are you know professionals, and they'll look at it uh, the way they should.
0: Right now, submarines aren't made in Mississippi, even though uh, uh, Senator Wicker uh, leads um, uh, the, the yeah, sea I, power I stand, uh, panel. I
2: stand corrected on that. They have a history of being made in Mississippi. Uh, they, they did.
0: Uh, Ingalls used to make submarines a long time ago. Right. And there is a proposal That's by some to set up a third submarine yard. Uh, in right. Mississippi, to be in able to cope with uh, pr- production uh, and a little bit of debate uh, going on in submarine circles, whether or not building that third yard is is the right idea now. Uh, and, and that was
2: what Wicker really was driving at, I believe.
0: That's and that is correct. Um, um, Chris, I'm going to get to you uh, in a minute on, on, on some of this as well. But, Patrick, what did you see? Um, Right. I mean, the Taiwan language and everybody watches very closely uh, Taiwan language. There's a battery ban in there, which for some people is more optical than than serious, depending on the kind of battery, obviously, that are being supplied. Uh, I think that many people would be surprised that components like that can make it into uh, U.S. uh, weapons. But, you know, if it's something innocuous and can't phone home, uh, we have we have tended to to use uh, some of that stuff. Walk us through. The Taiwan language, what you make of it, and what message it sends, if any, or or the totality of China language in the measure. Let me put it that way.
3: Well, starting with the totality, it's a strong support for Taiwan, um, and we hear every day with visitors from Asia, "Are you really going to defend Taiwan if China, if China attacks?" And the answer is yes. And I think the language of this uh, bill suggests that there's bipartisan support for strong uh, backing of Taiwan, and I think that's that's the right message. Um, you know, on the technology side, of course, every policy, not just with Taiwan, we are all in transition in terms of trying to defend uh, the high tech and trying to defend against vulnerabilities from the mainland. Um, but I think the main message here is on the defense side, showing uh, a comprehensive training authorization request to the Secretary of Defense allows the Defense Department now to um, make more coherent this rather piecemeal approach to training that has uh, evolved over time. So it even talks about the continuation of special operations training. You know, make Taiwan the porcupine uh, and, and help their defense and be able to resist aggression. But now this is much more comprehensive. So it's coming right up to the line of uh, challenging the one-China policy because it's it's looking like if the Pentagon does have a comprehensive training program for Taiwan's defense is are we treating Taiwan like a a country, (laughs) Uh, you know? So it will will, uh, rankle some the other way, but um, I think this is right in the sweet spot of showing um, serious defense for Taiwan, um, including putting pressure on the Pentagon to make good on equipment uh, provision um, and and threatening, you know, the use of funds uh, if if it's not actually providing the harpoon missiles and other equipment that we've uh, promised and that, you know, Taiwan wants to purchase.
0: Any progress is uh, good progress on uh, all, all of these fronts. Uh, Chris, I want to just uh, bring you in on this on AUKUS, because I know on Kavis ships, you guys have discussed this uh, quite a lot, as well as some of the other nuanced elements of this you see, uh, because it has implications both at an OSD level, but also at in Indo-Pacific Command.
4: I found the AUKUS holdup to be a little bit of a head-scratcher. Uh, I mean, the, the language, I mean, it's great, as Michael said, that they were able to get to that compromise, but um, all of this hullabaloo over language that prohibits transferring Virginia-class submarines for a year after the legislation is passed, I mean, there's no way we could transfer submarines for like 10 years, right? I mean, they would just sit peerside in Australia, So there's got to be a lot more to that. Um, and, you know, maybe that'll come out uh, over time. And Dove alluded to some of the politics, but I think that was a real head scratcher for those that were, um, you know, hoping to ride the momentum of AUKUS um, through the NDAA and through other uh, milestones that have been uh, occurring. Um, the other I, I would point to that uh, we haven't talked about yet that was a real positive was adding some structure to what has been a, a little bit of a kid's soccer pickup game effort for JADC2 and other um, needed technology. Um, the There's language in there that's going to add some structure, and there's more language, I think, that is going to add structure to the efforts going to the combatant commanders, particularly U.S. Indo-PACOM, um, as well as additional language that talks about Um, the need for uh, the Pentagon's acquisition office to really have to identify um, what technologies are being researched and tested that would meet warfighter requirements. I mean, that sounds like a basic, but I mean, this has always been the uh, concern that the services go after technology and it may or may not actually meet what is needed by the warfighter. This would seem to help that. Uh,
0: Just a quick word from all of our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Jim, be patient with us for a second. I'm going to have Michael set up uh, emergency aid for uh, Ukraine, Israel, as well as uh, Taiwan. Obviously, that's uh, held up. There was a vote this week. Uh, and Republicans blocked uh, aid, tying it to uh, the border issue. Something that the president had also done. With some criticism that the president is the one who screwed this up by putting that in there, and now uh, being accused of not negotiating. Although Democrats, you know, say it's it's the Republicans who don't want this resolved. Where are we on this? Uh, because the White House is saying we were at an urgent point in Ukraine aid, and pretty much everybody I've talked to in the past, you know, couple of weeks has said it's urgent, and it's getting worse. Michael, where are we on all of that? And is aid going to happen, and is a border deal going to happen? Or is the border deal the excuse not to do Ukraine aid, which is what some fear uh, is what we're seeing now? Well, look, you're right. We are not uh, in a good place.
1: And uh, after today, there's only four legislative days remaining in the rest of the year. And so the question becomes, will Congress stay in? Uh, later to get this done. I don't believe that they will. Um, So I I still think that we are going to get a deal. Um, You know, I think things have to fall apart before they come together. So the vote that failed Wednesday, everybody knew the vote was going to fail Wednesday was all about show. Uh, There was talk about the border discussions breaking down. Uh, They did not. Uh, So they are actively happening. They will probably take place through the weekend. Uh, Senator Lankford, uh, who's leading the Republican side, still feels confident that there will be uh, some agreement. You know, this is not, you know, comprehensive immigration reform that they're looking to put on here. And this is, I, I do believe at the end of the day, the Democrats recognize, and I've talked to a lot of Democrats on the Hill, and they recognize that they need some border policy changes, and it's a win for them too, that they could try to exactly. take some of this issue off the table going into the 24 elections. Uh, you now, look, I think
0: there's a but, lot but of But wouldn't that be go. a reason for Republicans deliberately not to do it?
1: In no, your estimation, right? If it's a winning no.
0: issue for them, why would you resolve it now? Because Republicans,
1: a lot of Republicans really do care about resolving these border issues. They want these policy changes, in addition to the funding. And a lot of Republicans want Ukraine aid. Right? They're just right. trying to get the Democrats to work with them to get to yes. And so I think there's there's a lot of blame to go around here, right? Look, we wouldn't be having this discussion on Ukraine if it wasn't for Donald Trump, anyway, right? I mean, right. this is uh, you know anathema to what the Republican Party stands for. Uh, but at the same time. You know, we've mentioned this over and over again on previous episodes that the administration failed to read the calendar and and read the political tea leaves here. We had Republicans led by Ken Calvert at the beginning of the year asking for the supplemental. Right. Please send us what you want for Ukraine so we can get this done and have this conversation. And they delayed it dramatically. And now they're uh, running around crying like, oh, my God, we're running out of time. Also, where's the White House in these negotiations on the border, right? I mean, this is so critical. The president should be convening these folks in the White House to figure out what can and can't be done and get this done. Um, But I've always felt, uh, you know, it's always messy. We always get them. we have to get them where there's a will is a way. And I still do believe that it may not happen this year, uh, but it it may happen early next year. But I do believe that a package is going to come together because these issues are just too important uh, not to get done.
0: Uh, Jim, from from your standpoint, where do we stand on the aid? How much more flexibility do we have? Because in the short in a period of a couple of short months, we have gone from, you know, valiant nation brought together by a visionary and uniting leader, uh, you you know, sticking it to the big guy. They they are. They're making battlefield progress. The Russian casualties are terrible, but it's a country of 144 million, as we've discussed, that's geared to a war economy, getting help from. Everybody from, uh, you know, Iran, North Korea, uh, you know, Dove, uh, we were talking before the show, your suspicion that the Chinese may actually be helping uh, the Russians more, certainly illicit, you know, an American consumer technology making it to Russia through third party states. Where, where are we and how dire is the situation? Because nothing succeeds like winning, but because Ukraine is not winning, now there are all sort of internal political fractures that are developing in Ukraine, which is exactly what Vladimir Putin wants to see. I mean, if Putin wanted to stage manage this, it doesn't get any better and we send a negative signal to, to China. Where where are we right now, ultimately?
5: Well, I think you've laid it out very well. And uh and what Michael just said too, I support him completely. Where is the White House politically to get this stuff moving on the hill? I I'm not an expert in that. Michael is, and I support him what he said. And I think lots of fingers uh can be pointed, and I think the White House. Deserves a big finger pointed in terms of how they've been handling this thing politically. So that aside, where we are, uh, I, I will say two, a couple things. One is, and the big point is that we're in the middle of a war, and if you look at the course of war in the past, you have periods like this. You, particularly um, a period where there is an offensive going on, and you're going against these fixed defensive positions by the Russians. It's going to take time, and I. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but what really bothers me is that we have this short term thinking and I understand how, you know, how Washington works. And and this is not unusual. But the thing is, in war like this, a short your short term perspective doesn't work. We have got to be in this thing with the idea that this is going to take years and it's not going to show a lot of great progress until a bit later. But we've got to hang in there. But what's happening is in this town, we're allowing this situation on the battlefield to get sucked into our politics. And so the town is gloomy right now. And I have been around town now for the past week um, in a lot of various roundtables and meetings and various think tanks, a lot of visitors coming in from Europe and from NATO headquarters uh, asking what's going on. And what's interesting is, as I talk to them, they say that they're taking back to Europe. Uh, after their meetings here, these officials are taking back to Europe how gloomy it is here in Washington and that there really is a, a beginning to see a loss of faith here. And I try to make the point to them that don't get caught up in our politics. The lot of the gloom they hear around the table uh, are from folks who are really gloomy about the, 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 the uh, state of and the trajectory of U.S. politics, the Trump looming in the horizon, uh, what's happening on the Hill. Uh, and that that is painting oh, how we're feeling about Ukraine as well. And I said, um, go, definitely make sure that Europe knows how gloomy things are here uh, and that that is the context within which decisions are being made in the White House. But when we're looking at the war itself, we cannot allow the gloominess to undercut the assistance that's got to go to Ukraine. A package was just announced a few days ago, a lot of ammunition, a lot of things that they need to get through the winter, particularly air defense. Uh, a lot of obstacle busting equipment as well. Uh, I wish that would have come in earlier. But uh, but anyway, it, we're a gloomy town right now. And I think we have got to understand as we look at war, we have got to not let that gloom uh, make us make bad decisions
0: on helping Ukraine. Um, how, uh, Patrick, is this being regarded by the Chinese who are watching every single maneuver here?
3: Well, they're not just watching; they're acting, uh, and they're pushing on what they think is a, an opportunity at the moment. So, as Jim points out, uh, this is a, a longer uh, campaign, uh, and we shouldn't uh, try to judge things just on a on a current situation. But uh, the reality is that there's been a, a sea change uh, in the in the recent weeks. Um, so, whether it's in the Middle East, where Iran looks strong this year, last year it looked very weak; Israel looks weak last year; it looked uh, insuperable. Russia looks like it's rebounding, Ukraine's looking weaker, Uh, and now China is uh, acting with a a lot of different partners, including Russia. And I think uh, just building on Dove's excellent piece on the Belarusian uh, connection here with uh, China, uh, I suspect that uh, he's right, uh, that uh, China is also using uh, the cover of North Korea to provide Russia with more equipment and arms. Um, And so those trains that go through, uh, you know, China and Russia, um, this is a place where uh, China can uh, essentially shift uh, North Korean goods, which may not be as useful for the Russians, and provide uh, more Chinese equipment so the the Chinese are very active. Xi Jinping is going to Hanoi. Uh, He's basically putting money on the table, rare earths cargo project to try to say those American strategic uh, agreements are political, ours are real. Um, You know, they're uh, playing uh, over Cambodia. They just sent their first two uh, naval vessels uh, have shown up uh, in Ream naval base, which uh, the Cambodians and the Chinese protested for months and and even years that this was not a naval base uh, and we're not going to host PLA ships. Um, So they're they're playing uh, in the Middle East. They're playing with Russia. They're playing with Iran, North Korea, uh, throughout Southeast Asia. That's how the Chinese are responding. They're hoping to use this as an opportunity. So going back to the, the you know the positive here that Jen was emphasizing, um, we have to remain engaged. Uh, I just came from New York City, the, the Hudson Institute annual gala, Kevin McCarthy was there. I, I've never heard such strong-throated support for Ukraine from this very conservative group. Um, and I know that doesn't represent the entire conservative movement in the country by any means, but at the same time, there is strong support, bipartisan support for Ukraine. Um, But we have to get functional again and make sure we can provide uh, the kind of assistance that Ukraine will need. Having said that, clearly, the stalemate in the war between Ukraine and Russia requires adjustments, too. So it's not just throwing money at it. We have to have a strategy that helps the Ukrainians uh, take on this next phase of their campaign, because this is a long, a long campaign and we have to be with them.
0: Uh, Dov, very uh, briefly, summarize your case. uh, You know, uh, uh, Patrick uh, mentioned it, but summarize your case. And what the policy answer to this needs to be, right? I mean, if China is the one who's violating uh, sanctions on Russia, even if it's doing so through Belarus, that's problematic. The U.S. has tightened sanctions, but is still allowing a lot of stuff to get through for a whole variety of reasons, unfortunately. What's what's your, your case and what is it Washington needs to do in response?
2: Well, yeah. Um... You know, uh, what I wrote about in The Hill was just that. I mean, once the Chinese equipment winds up next to Russian equipment, it's kind of hard to know whose equipment it really is. Um, yeah, we we need to go back to the Chinese and say, look, uh, we want to do some business with you, but you're making it very hard for us. And that uh, given the weakness of the Chinese economy, we can, we can make it hard for them. Uh, I think that at a minimum, we need to call them out. Uh, We have not, uh, and we should, Uh, just like uh, Jake Sullivan called out the Iranians over the Houthi business, the Houthi attacks. Uh, By the way, uh, last week at uh, the Reagan Forum, uh, Secretary Austin kept saying, uh, repeating a mantra you hear all over the administration, you know, we can walk and chew gum. I'm not so sure. I think part of the problem with Ukraine is something I saw when I was in the administration uh, during the beginning, the months leading up to the Iraq war, which was we took our eye off Afghanistan. I think we have fundamentally taken our eye off Ukraine. Yes, we're going to throw money at them, but the kind of what Jim talked about and and Patrick talked about, the need for a strategy, um, they're not thinking in those terms right now because of what's going on in Gaza. And oh, by the way, we don't normally talk about Latin America very much but we're doing an exercise with Guyana because the Venezuelans are challenging uh, Guyana over uh, an oil-rich region, the Essequibo region, um, something that really was under British Guyana before Guyana became has been there for a hundred years. And it sure smells to me like uh, Iraq claiming Kuwait uh, in, in 1990. Uh, and then what happens? Now we're focusing on that. We're focusing on the attack on the carny in the, in the Gulf and, and the merchant ships. We're focusing on Ukraine. We're focusing on Gaza. And we just cannot do it.
0: Chris, do you want to weigh in on this on a second? I mean, Dev, I would I would somewhat disagree with you. I think they are paying attention to it. But at some point, it's too much. It's a lot. And even if you're trying to juggle all of this stuff, it it becomes something uh that's uh hard to do and i have one no let me let me be, go
2: let gym. me vago let me be clear of course we're paying attention to it that's why we're doing an exercise in latin america that's why we're sending right. uh, material to ukraine that's not my point my point is that the kinds of strategies we need to be devising whether it's the day after in gaza or how to deal with ukraine or even how to deal with what's going on in latin america I don't see that, and I think that's kind of what Patrick and Jim were also saying.
4: I guess the only thing I I would, I don't know if it's a pushback or just a a sort of a larger question. I mean, you know, I heard the secretary say about, you know, walking and chewing gum. I mean, you only have to listen to what Patrick described uh, vis-a-vis China, and it's really like walking, chewing gum. Um, you, you know, playing tennis, uh, tying your shoes. I mean, add like five or six different things. I mean, and that that is the state of where, where we are. All of which, as a way of trying to keep China in check. So, again, I'm not trying to shill for the administration, but I I do think that they this is very much a fulcrum for this uh, for this administration and, and likely the the next several. Um, and the reality is, is at times you do have to take your eye off the ball a little bit to deal with whatever the crisis du, du jour is Uh I don't know that I would criticize them too much. I mean, I think the larger issue is, is, you know, if you're supportive of Ukraine, pass the bill. If you're supportive of Taiwan, pass the bill. Like it may be time to put our money where our mouth is across government. I know that sounds a little Pollyannish, but I mean, I, I don't know what else you can do. We're, we're complicating our own problems but by not solving them, uh, you know, one by one. Um, Let me,
0: uh, Michael, I'm going to come back to you because there's still a lot of congressional stuff that we've got to uh, discuss, but Jim, very quickly, we have a tendency of ringing alarm bells. uh, And then, uh, unfortunately, the longer you ring an alarm bell, the more people get sort of comfortable with the alarm bell ringing and they don't evacuate the building. What is the no shit, like how much time we Ukraine has now before it needs a next wave of aid and a next wave of capability. I know we're developing a lot of stuff. Andrew won't uh, confirm who its roadrunner system is for, but I think it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out. It may be headed to Ukraine as part of that next wave of, of technology to help the country, and it certainly um, looks like it is going to be able to uh, to, to, to do the job. How much, how much time do members and everybody in the political scene in Washington and all of our allies and partners have to do the right thing?
5: They will make do with the time they have in terms of assistance. In other words, for them, uh, they don't, well, I'm, I'm really mangling this, but they don't have any time. They are gonna do the best they can of what they got, no matter, no matter of the timeline, they cannot lose this. We cannot let them lose this. Um, and so as far as uh, the time, You know, we might it's we're the ones that are running out of time here in in the United States and in the West. Uh, We're the ones that have a have a ticking time clock for Ukraine. They're going to fight. They're going to fight. They're going to fight. If they have just rock to throw, they're going to be fighting to the end. So, you know, Washington can deal with its own timeline here. But for Ukraine, um, you know, that's 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 beside the point. They're going to be there to fight no matter what they've got in their hands to do
1: it with.
0: Um, I think what's funny about Washington is the number of people uh, yesterday at the uh, Aspen uh, Security Forum, and it's always a great event, uh, needs a little bit more networking time because it's one sort of great panel after another. But this sort of, hey, you know, the Ukrainians should have negotiated from a position of strength when they regained a portion of their technology. That's when was the time for a ceasefire, Assume you know, like making believe that the Russians were actually interested in in uh, in, in, in doing, uh, a ceasefire, right. I find these sort of interesting Washington solutions to our problem. Hey, we'll just move them into a ceasefire and then we don't have to worry about that anymore, it's which, a I, lot which of I think
5: and it muddies the water. It, it confuses the Ukrainians. It gives, uh, the Europeans a false sense of a direction that the U S is going in all this, this cacophony of, of voices coming out of Washington about, uh, you know let's let's negotiate no let's fight and and right. you know let's uh pr- protect all the mantras you know that come out uh as long as it takes uh it's just uh boy we just cannot seem to get our act together and it comes down to leadership quite frankly someone has got to stand up and tell everyone to shut up and let's move on a on a direct on a in a direction that's going to help ukraine here uh, but we are just mired in our politics and in our lack of leadership. And it's a pity. It comes at
0: a very bad time. It, 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 it does. Uh, we're going to uh, keep moving because we've got a lot more uh, stuff to talk about. A quick reminder for our audience to check out our award-winning weekly podcast, Cavas Chips, hosted by our very own Chris Cavas and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII. Uh, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace uh, that I co-host with our own JJ Uh, Gertler. uh Michael, I, I want to uh, go to you because we still have some uh, mechanical stuff. You heard Patrick talk about Kevin McCarthy being uh, 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 awarded uh, or feted by uh, the Hudson Institute in New York at their annual dinner. Kevin McCarthy uh, said that he is uh, going to step down Uh, After having saying, you know, I'm a fighter and I'm going to stay in this, Uh, George Santos is gone. So the Republican margin is down to three seats. Um, And at the same time, we've got the whole Tuberville uh, thing that are going on, right? I mean, 700 people are getting cleared, but uh, the four stars uh, aren't. And also give us your take on appropriations. And what does that look like? Because as you said, right, we have very few days and we're on the holiday recess. Give us kind of a quick recap on where you see all of these vectors going. Sure. So, uh, you know, as
1: we've talked about previously, what we really need on appropriations um, before the end of the
0: year and hopefully
1: before the end of next week is an agreement on, on the top line so that the Appropriations Committee staff can begin writing appropriations bills that are ready when Congress reconvenes in January uh, to start passing a series of minibuses uh, in, before the CRs expire. Um, there's there's still time. The clock is ticking. I mean, uh, the speaker did reiterate again that he does not want to consider any more short term uh, extensions, uh, and he did say that the bipartisan debt limit agreement is the law of the land, and that provides the framework uh, that they're negotiating from right now. So, you know, the top line, uh, you know, and the Democrats, I think, rightfully so, believe we already have a top line agreement. We passed, you know, the the FRA. Uh, we all agreed to, and that's our top line. So. But now the question is, what is that number because of the so-called side deals? And we talked about last week that um, that the Democrats feel, and I agree with them, that part of that deal was that they would use some of the unspent COVID funds uh, on the non-defense domestic discretionary to make up for those cuts because defense is growing at 3% and the non-defense is actually getting cut. That doesn't cost any extra money because that money has already been appropriated. Uh, So that is still being negotiated. However, the chaos caucus has thrown a new wrench uh, into the mix, And they are now pushing to count any money, including emergency money, uh, which would include the money for Israel and Ukraine, within those budget caps. And that is a complete non-starter. And I can't imagine uh, that the speaker and Republican leadership will go for that. And even if they do, these guys are constantly uh, creating new red lines and and moving the bar. They don't care about governing. And it's time to marginalize them and work with the Democrats to get this done. They're not going to vote for these bills anyway. Uh, so I, I think that this is, you know, causing more delay, but I still am optimistic that we will get there on, on appropriations. Um, as far as Tuberville, you know, as Dove you know pointed out, he ended his 10 month hold. Uh, so much to our relief, I, I did feel confident that this would end before the end of the year. Uh, obviously, it did cause a lot of damage. Uh, however, there are. You know, 12 four-star nominees that he's not um, pulling his hold on, uh, but those can be done uh, in, in regular order of the Senate. And now, for some reason, Senator Schmidt uh, from Missouri uh, is holding up a few nominees over the Pentagon diversity and inclusion efforts. So we haven't heard the last of this, but we're past past the worst of it. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy is going to be leaving Congress at the end of the month. So the Republicans had a five-seat majority Now, with the expulsion of George Santos, they have a four-seat majority, and with Kevin McCarthy leaving at the end of the month, they'll have a three-seat majority. And now Congressman uh, Bill Johnson from Ohio says that he's taking another job and will be leaving in the first quarter of next year, which will put the Republicans down to a two-seat majority. Uh, Patrick McHenry
0: also has said he's going to
1: retire. Yeah, and Patrick McHenry has announced he's going to retire, right? He will still complete his term, but McHenry, it, it, and I'm glad you pointed out, it's a very significant loss, right? McHenry is one of the, the good guys, and he's a reasonable guy, and he knows how to talk to all the factions. He was in the leadership. He's been a trusted confidant of McCarthy. He chairs the Financial Services Committee, uh, and you know his departure is really going to be felt uh, behind the scenes. And, and as these reasonable members leave, the fear here is that they get replaced by – people on the fringe. Uh, and that makes Congress harder to govern and makes things much harder to function.
0: But I would uh, also point out, right, I mean, if you're Patrick McHenry, uh, you're also looking at this and that you had a shot as a speaker. Folks thought you could be a great speaker. Uh, it went to Mike Johnson. And then, of course, you know, at some point you decide, you know what, I I just don't need to deal with the crazy anymore. I've, I've done my time. No, I, I agree. In the, in the asylum. Um, I just want to make one clarification. Nobody Uh, uh, you know, that that message about negotiating was not coming from the dais at the uh, Aspen Forum, right? Uh, Lord Cameron did a terrific job and a very articulate case on why um, you know, uh, Ukraine aid needed to continue and the message from the stage uh, was that. But I just wanted to say that in the sidebar discussions, you heard a lot of people and increasingly in Washington say like, well, you know, I mean, they should have taken the deal when they uh, when when they could have um, let me uh, we, we've got to uh, talk uh, about Houthis, uh, but I wanted to bring uh, Dove here uh, for uh, just a, a brief discussion on uh, Israel. Uh, when last we recorded, uh, there was a ceasefire that we knew was on. or or a temporary cessation of fighting or halt or whatever you wanted to call it. Uh, And Israel has continued uh, its operations, saying that it's making a lot of claims, really uh, uh, making claims that it is getting Hamas uh, leaders and also trying to do a little bit of a better case uh, on, you know, hey, we're we're targeting these Hamas guys, but they're spread around in the population, but then also getting a lot of criticism for putting a QR code out you know, in a place where people don't have access to, to cell phone signals, pressure mounting the United States, saying we, we need you need to do a better job, um, constraining civilian casualties, driving people to the south, now bombing in the south. Um, How, do, how does this play out, uh, Dove? Because I think that if you listen to what Israeli leaders have been saying, they are consistent with their goal of making Gaza basically, I mean, fighting Hamas, but also making it basically uninhabitable, unviable, and it is achieving that aim. The question is what happens after that, because Arab governments are warning that this is a problem. And we heard from Shibli Telhami at uh, Aspen, uh, the Anwar uh, Sadat uh, uh, Chair for Peace at the University of Maryland, saying, look, this is just bad for the United States, because now he's like, I haven't seen the Arab world as angry at the United States. Uh, in a long time. And he thinks there's going to be generational damage uh, from from this. Where are we? Where are we going? Because it doesn't appear, you know, and people are like, oh, well, you know, BB BB will be gone. It, it doesn't appear BB is going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, where where are we and what are the next steps in this?
2: Well, you've covered a lot of it. Uh, a couple of things. First, there's been a big issue over the you know, the fact that Hamas seems to have deliberately raped Israeli women and tortured them in order to uh, terrorize the population. A lot of anger at the United Nations Women's Organization and a lot of uh, progressive women's organizations that really didn't speak out at all, and and most of them have still been silent about this. So there's a lot of anger about that. Um, You're right about the safe zones, the so-called safe zones that the Israelis uh, are telling people to go to, but of course they told people to go to the South. Uh so, you know, if you're if you're a Gazan, this is gonna be your second kind of internal uh refugee status. Uh the Israelis still haven't said anything other than imply that they're gonna stick around in Gaza for some time. We know that the Arab states don't want to take over Gaza, so the question is, okay, if the Israelis take out the Hamas leadership uh and uh a good part of the Hamas uh forces, um well, who's going to take charge if it's not the Israelis? And, and nobody really wants the Israelis. And then you've got a, another issue that's, that could loom very large for the administration, which is there's a provision in the United Nations uh, Charter. It's called Article 99. And that allows the Secretary General to go directly to the Security Council to ask for a vote on an issue. And Guterres, the Secretary General, has said he's he's invoked Article 99, which is very rare, because he wants the Security Council to vote on a ceasefire. The Israelis are bitterly opposed. And the question is, will the United States veto? And if it does not veto, then, uh, of course, that makes it exceedingly difficult for the Israelis if it abstains. Uh, On the other hand, if it does veto, then Biden's got a real problem with his Democratic left. The the party is is more and more... uh, disenchanted with what Israel's doing, in part because, as you said, Vago, there's no indication that Netanyahu is going anywhere. In fact, uh, when they had the commission that uh, the so-called Agrenat commission after the 73 war, which led to Golda Meir's departure, that commission is appointed by the cabinet. Guess who's got the majority in the cabinet? There may not even be a commission. So you've got a lot of questions here. And if there is a Security Council vote, and I think there probably will have to be, that is going to be a very tough dilemma for the White House. Does,
0: do you agree with uh, Shibley's uh, position that this is actually generational damage that isn't going to heal anytime
2: soon? The, the no, I don't think so. Uh, I think Shibley is being uh, alarmist to some extent. Uh, there are a couple of things to watch here. First, nobody's pulled out of the Abraham Accords, which I find exceedingly interesting. Um, but secondly, it just depends on how Gaza is treated. And how the Palestinians are treated, if there's a movement to a two state solution, if there's some kind of reconstruction of Gaza, then you're going to have a a, a cooling of uh, of this kind of uh, anger in the street. If nothing happens or the Israelis remain in Gaza, then, yeah, then Shibley's probably right. All
0: eyes around how this uh, goes uh, to its uh, next phases. And I should point out, right, a big part of that frustration was also the mounting. Uh, settler attacks on Palestinian communities in the West Bank—that is another irritant. Um, I, I just think it's funny. It's it's interesting to you know we we want to see the Palestinian authorities step up and take that role, whereas it appears the Palestinian authority is actually increasingly less popular and Hamas is more popular. For you know which which um, honestly, I mean this is a, from a strategy standpoint. One ball is is achieving you know one action, deplorable, horrific, vile action. Has triggered a whole bunch of things, including destabilizing American politics. So I think it's yeah. Let me
2: let me build let me build on that, Valgo. I think you're absolutely right about what's going on in the West Bank. Uh, You've got this uh, fascist minister who's in charge of the police, uh, Ben Gvir, who's been giving out thousands of rifles uh, to settlers, uh, including underage settlers who haven't even served in the military, and and you know they're just harassing uh, shepherds, they're harassing farmers. Uh, and the and many of the Israeli soldiers who come from the West Bank are standing around doing nothing. Uh, so you've got a, a time bomb. Uh, you, you're right about Hamas, but it goes beyond Hamas. You've got a time bomb on the West Bank that could explode at any time if this continues, and there's no indication that Netanyahu, in fact, Netanyahu has justified giving rifles to
0: these people. And, and putting us... Certainly in a bind, and seeing it even be uh, reflected uh, in uh, the um, deplorable performance of some of uh, America's leading academic uh, leaders, where they could have given simple questions to simple answers. Even if Elise Stefanik was trying to bait them horribly, they should never have fallen uh, into that trap. But I want to get to that uh, in uh, a moment. Well, we have a PR man here. Uh, Chris, uh, just give us, you know, speak for us all, give us kind of a quick take uh a pr take because we do have to discuss the houthi matter and we're running short on time but chris give us your sense on how um the presidents of some of america's leading institutions completely messed this up uh yesterday
4: it's an app was an absolute fail um they missed a, a moment to lead uh not only uh for their respective communities but sort of lead um holistically for the country I don't think you put the genie back in the bottle and if i was on the board of directors of any of those institutions those folks would be gone i mean that's the only way to move forward you can have thoughtful discussion on politics and um on uh international issues you you cannot have uh any sort of equivocation or discussion on hate uh and they were given a chance to be on the right side of the issue and uh they stumbled it it cost four hundred thousand dollars for a student to go to Harvard. Uh, you, you know, for four years, where's that money going? Um, it's obviously not going to uh, PR help for the president of the institution. Um,
0: and and what was the right way to have handled this situation?
4: Well, I think the the right answer was to make clear that you you don't allow whether it's for uh, anti-Semitic rhetoric or any other hate rhetoric that you do not uh, tolerate that, uh, and that they have that this like other issues, illuminates some of the problems that they have on college campuses and that they and their leadership teams need to get to work. I mean, I think that's the that's the simple answer. First of all, they should have known that they were going to be baited by whatever side invited them there. I mean, again, these are smart people that should have uh, should have known. And if they don't know, they should hire smart people like Michael Hurston to tell them uh, what, what to expect when, when they when they go in there. Um, so again, I mean, it's a horrible mistake that that will cost them their institutions. And I think universities and colleges writ large, uh, huge uh, reputation points.
0: I I should point out, this is also going to cost the Democrats big time, uh, ultimately. You know, even if uh, Stefanik was baiting them, they should have known that this was going on and that there was a very moral and correct answer to this that was unequivocal. And they should have taken that opportunity to do it instead of going to legal mumbo jumbo. Michael, what is the impact of this going to be? Uh, ultimately, you think, on Democrats, because there are a lot of people who are personally offended in a deep way uh, in the wake of this. And I would count you as being one of those people who's just genuinely hurt by what it is that we've been seeing. Absolutely.
1: Right. Uh, And it's 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 groups that the Jewish community has locked arms with over decades fighting for causes together. And now this community is, is turning on the, on the Jewish community and the Jewish community in this country rightfully feels uh, very much uh, uh, betrayed by, by the far left. Um, and I think the repercussions, as you just correctly pointed out, uh, are going to be uh, severe. We've just seen the tip of the iceberg. Uh, the chair of the educational workforce committee, Virginia Fox uh, announced yesterday that she is going to expand this investigation well beyond Harvard uh, MIT, New- University of Pennsylvania, to universities across the country about how they're dealing with this. And I think we're going to unearth uh, a lot more uh, of this. And I think that these country- universities will pay the price with maybe uh, curtailing some of their federal funding. Uh, there's talk about taxing their endowments. Uh, and uh, and this will also hurt the-, the left's cause when it comes to you know DEI and other causes as well, because it makes it look like we – Want you know diversity, equity, inclusion for everybody, except when it comes to the Jews. You know, people were standing in front of, uh, you know, you have Jewish sororities in this country, right, and fraternities being attacked by professors on college campuses and other fellow students blaming them for what's going on in Israel. What if they were standing in front of an African American fraternity, blaming them for the genocide in Rwanda? We we wouldn't be standing for that. We're standing in front of an LGBT you know Q, uh, sorority or organization attacking them and saying that they need to be wiped out. We wouldn't be tolerating that either. You know, so I think the Jewish community rightfully is just perplexed as to where this double
0: standard is coming from. And we haven't heard the last of this. And and it's, uh, you know, particularly deplorable because Jewish Americans feel uh, that they can't even, um, you know, put signs of Judaism out on Hanukkah uh, for fear of being attacked. Uh, I'm glad that the lighting of the National Menorah uh, went off smoothly, but it's it's just it's horrible uh, to be identified by your by your name, your religion, your ethnicity, and then targeted by it. And we know what what happens uh, in that case. Dove, you had a brief comment because we have to hit Houthis and uh,
2: Kurt uh, Campbell uh, and his advancement and why it's critical for the Indo Pacific. Go ahead, quick word. Just very quickly, I second everything Michael just said. I would just point out that the kids from the uh, the three universities held a press conference and they went beyond what Michael described. I mean, they talked about students who are afraid to leave their rooms. They talked about students who are being attacked in class by professors. I mean, it really sounds, the way they were describing this is what Jews went through in Germany before the Holocaust in 1935, 36, 37, when the discrimination had already begun, but before the killing had begun. And Boy, that's scaring the Jewish community big time. I and some of this, uh, unfortunately, also has a little bit
0: of Russian fingers in it, uh, as we have uh, seen or has been uh, reported. But it's also your job across the piece to try to do it. And Michael, to your point, uh, it was the Jewish community that right that was in the vanguard uh, of the civil rights uh, movement, uh, and you know, sp- spanning for many decades even before the 1960s. Uh, And uh, and so, yes, I mean, it's it's very problematic again from a standpoint, the Jews helped to found the NAACP. A lot of people don't realize that. Correct. And again, with many, many other uh, denominational religious leaders, but still uh, a very important, uh, very important milestone. And again, I mean, this is why I'm saying it it, strategically. This is causing fractures and ramifications that uh, our uh, adversaries can easily exploit uh and at some point we've got to come together as americans to try to balance this out as opposed to saying well my you know you're looking at your narrow tiny slice uh, as opposed to what it is for the common good, alas. Uh, Chris, uh, lead us off quickly on the uh, Houthi discussion. You've got a couple of interesting points. I think the group is uh, universal. This is one of these times where we're 100% <laughs> agreement that it's important for us to take out those uh, launch sites. But you also think that there are some interesting developments in naval warfare and in warfare in general that we're seeing in the Carney incident. Walk us through, um, you know, how meaningfully. You, in your career, watched how the Navy was responding to this a couple of years ago, and the smoothness and the discipline with which uh, the Navy really has improved its operational arts—you uh, know, its its its—you know—warfighting skills. Because one ship is now defending a large amount of territory, including an important ally. Go ahead.
4: Yeah, I think Vago and, and you alluded to it. There are tactical, operational, and strategic takeaways from uh, this engagement. I'll leave the strategic to the group uh, to talk about how how they want to handle it. But both tactically and operationally, there are all sorts of lessons learned. Um, and you know, like what we've learned over the last two years in Ukraine, uh, they have application uh, not only for how we uh, prosecute. Uh, engagements in the Middle East. But God forbid uh, we have these types of engagements uh, in the Indo-Pacific uh, area. There's a lot to learn. Um, from a tactical standpoint, we are seeing these ships perform very well. Uh, that was not the case when this happened in 2016, uh, when the Mason and NHTSA uh, were, uh, were attacked. Um, we had a hard time even uh, identifying the the inbound uh, missiles, the crews. One ship handled it uh, as you would have expected. The other um, had a hard time identifying, had a hard time dealing. Dealing with it, there were uh, resilience issues after the fact, um, and the Navy and the surface community spent a lot of time trying to fix that. Uh, and everything we've seen thus far from a tactical standpoint is going off without a hitch. Then you raise it up a level and you start to have operational questions. You start to have these like, hey, should we be shooting million dollar SM2 missiles, uh, standard missiles um, designed to uh, engage targets way away from the ship or way away from the target being? Um, you know, attacked, uh, should we be spending a million dollar missile on what, you know, essentially equates to tens of thousands or low hundreds of thousand targets? Um, And those questions are starting to be decided. And, you know, you have the Navy that you have, right? So whether we're dealing with these issues in the Middle East or whether we'll deal with them in the Indo-PACOM uh, issue we we have to think about: Do we have the right missiles? Do we have the right numbers of missiles? Um, and if we don't, we need to get busy because um, you, you know it takes a long time to uh, to introduce a new uh, uh, missile. Um, but for now, tactically and operationally, lots of lessons learned on, on our side. I would also say that if you're in, uh, the Iranians and the Chinese, you're learning a lot about how we handle these threats. Um, so. Um, You know, this sort of intermediate period, uh, both sides are are getting a lot of uh, intelligence that will help them make decisions in the future. And then I'll leave it to you guys to talk about the strategic, um, you know, should we be going after the Houthis? Should we be taking these threats out? Um, Do we look weak? I mean, that's all uh, good good things to uh, discuss at a higher level.
0: Um, uh, I want to go quickly around the horn. We're already overweight on the show, but Dove, uh, you're the one who wrote a thoughtful uh, piece uh, about this uh, that ran today uh, in the Hill. Stop the Houthis, America. To stop the Houthis, America should ramp up pressure on Iran. Um, shouldn't we just be taking out the weapon launch sites to make it clear that behavior like this is not acceptable? Which is the reason why it's continuing. We've let something like 45 attacks over the last several administrations go through against American troops in Syria. Our reactions have been only a handful of counterstrikes. Uh, we are now striking back on a much more regular basis. Uh, and and in order to be able to do that messaging, what is it? How is it we should be responding? What are all the things we need to do? Uh, and then I want to hear about uh, it from Jim, uh, from Patrick, uh, and then uh, Michael.
2: Go ahead. Well, we could go after the Houthi launchers. Uh, the Saudis are essentially begging us not to. They, they are are engaged in a, a kind of peace process that's been relatively quiet in Yemen, uh, where uh, they've had a humanitarian disaster for years. So they're saying, look, don't disrupt it. Uh, we could go one of two ways. We could say, sorry, folks, but these people can't shoot at us and we could go after uh, the Houthis. My my sense is, look, uh, Jake Sullivan made it clear uh, that uh, the Iranians are really behind this. The Iranians are behind the attacks in Syria and Iraq uh and maybe it's just time to uh go after the iranians you don't have to fire at them uh you we have uh, cyber capabilities that could give them a very hard time uh one suggestion i made in the hill today was go after karg island that's where they ship out all their oil or most of it um so i but one thing is clear whether you go after iran or whether you go after the houthis or whether you go after both this administration has to step up, just like Jim pointed out. It has to step up on Ukraine, just like it has to step up on Taiwan. It has to step up here and just show that we will not take this. Jim, I I agree with Dove. I mean, uh, I'm a I'm a hit them
5: both uh, man. Uh, I think I think having a uh, turning off the lights in Tehran <laughs> would, would be great. Carg Island. Uh, I think I think what uh, uh, Dove says is right on that, too. But we do have to go against those launchers at a minimum, the launchers or maybe there's some type of uh, HQ there uh, that we could take out. But I think the Houthis have to feel it, too. And I I salute what uh, Dove was saying about the Saudi talks that are going on and the Saudis asking us not to do this. But I think it's reached a state now where we have to. We do look weak. The administration has got to step up.
3: Patrick. That makes uh, another vote for stepping up. I mean, we got to hit Iran, uh, not just the Houthis, and and the Chinese are making a mischief here as well. Uh, they are trying to divert our interests and uh, resources and attention in Asia, and they know this is another way to distract us. So even while we have to hit the Houthis in Iran, uh, we've got to keep focused on the other theater as well. Um, Isn't there, uh, just
0: briefly, uh, Dov, I mean, isn't there an escalation risk if you hit Karg Island? Right. I mean, aren't there a whole bunch of ways that the Iranians could be retaliating? Or is this a case where a sound punch in the nose is uh, the brushback pitch that everybody needs? Well,
2: I mean, it's not the brushback pitch. It's what they they've been going after us. They're killing our kids in Syria. They're killing our kids in Iraq. They're trying to kill our kids in the Persian Gulf. You know uh yeah of course there's always escalation risk the but there's a hell of a less escalation risk for the iranians if they really try to mess with us directly uh michael how is all this playing on the hill and
0: what are lawmakers from both parties telling you well look i I think this has been it's been on the hill for a while
1: and look at full disclosure uh, i represent one of the governments in the middle east that is impacted by this so i have this issue i've been working for a long time and and again, I t- personally, I believe this is a, a tremendous failure, again, on behalf of the administration. And this was a cause celeb by progressives for years, very upset about the Saudi-led coalition uh, fighting the Houthis in Yemen. And I spoke to many offices about this. I remember I would show the offices the, the, what, who the Houthis were, what their flag says. I mean, their flag says, you know, three of the five lines on the flag say, death to America, death to Israel, curse the Jews. These are not really good guys here that we're fighting. And, uh, and our allies in the Middle East are threatened by them, and they're also fighting our enemies for us. And many of the officers didn't even know this, this flag even existed. They didn't even think it was real until we had to show them, you know, had to prove it to them. Um, so, I, I, and, and, I, and one of my warnings at the time was, which has come true, is like, uh, once you get the Saudi coalition to stop fighting, then you're going to forget all about it. The humanitarian crisis is going to continue and the Iranians are going to have a stronghold uh, in Yemen, which is exactly where we are. The humanitarian crisis hasn't ended. There's still a million mines that were laid by the Houthis spread out around there, many which are in civilian areas. They've been looting the U.N. food convoys. And and now they're attacking uh, not only Israeli targets, but commercial targets and, and U.S. targets. And and you know we remember they, they were labeled as a foreign terrorist uh, organization uh, and the Biden administration took them off that list. Right. And there's been pressure from our allies in the region to put them back on that list. And the pressure is now again, our folks on the Hill, especially Republican senators, are pressing to put them on the list because now they're attacking, they're, they're supporting Hamas. Right. So even I think they should be put back on the foreign terrorist organization list, but it also looks, makes it look to our allies in the region, oh, okay. We told you these guys are bad guys. So if they shoot at us, it's OK. But if they shoot at you, now all of a sudden they're, they're bad guys. And it, it just and exposes our double standard and our hypocrisy. And this is
0: just a terrible failure of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. I would point out, right, I mean, the concern at the time was that the Saudi-led coalition was hitting uh, civilian targets so that it was going after uh, terrorists uh, and uh, as well uh, regime figures while at the same time inflicting too high civilian casualties, which was uh, the challenge and one of the reasons why there was a fracture in the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the UAE saying, hey, you know, we really need to be a lot more disciplined about how we go about, you know, this campaign. Uh, 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 And from a UAE standpoint, there's a little frustration that that forbearance uh, and that leadership position was not as, as fully appreciated by some. Uh, again, I would say it's a, it's a double standard, right? Civilians
1: die in combat. We killed plenty of civilians in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and all the previous wars that we've been involved with. And the Saudis were asking for precision guided weapons from us, which we refused to send to them, which would have minimized civilian casualties. So uh, it's again, uh, we can make all the excuses we want. You know, we did not stand behind our allies when we when they needed us. Right. And we're going to wonder what sometimes why they're not with us. And, and again, you know, um, we, we pushed the Saudis closer to the Chinese. It was the Chinese that brokered this arrangement with Iran to have this rapprochement and reopen their embassy there. And now they're the ones asking us not to be attacking Yemen. So the shoe is now on the other foot.
0: I I think there were a multiplicity of factors and reasons that go into this, and we can dedicate a separate program to that discussion. Uh, But I mean, there was also some butthurt clearly here in the administration, uh, in part, uh, you know, that led to some of those decisions, in part uh, because of of some of the attitudes that were being expressed at the time by the Saudi administration uh, towards the American administration, uh, which were somewhat problematic. But we will get to that all uh, later. Uh, As you clearly said, you're not a disinterested party sitting on the sidelines (laughs) of, of that. Uh, of that discussion, uh, yeah, look, but Patrick. In, but in
2: all fairness, I am a disinterested party, and I'm totally with Michael on this. Uh,
0: there you go. Thank you. Doug. Uh, we we are we are running out. See, Michael, you you got uh, you you know best party, and and you also uh, had other votes. Everybody had nice holiday parties this year, so uh, please, I'm not passing judgment. But Michael's party was a lovely uh, and lovely, lovely event. Uh, it, uh, Patrick, you get the last word. Thirty seconds. Kurt Campbell, uh, one of America's most uh, uh, capable. Uh, you couldn't imagine a more capable person becoming the deputy secretary of state. Walk us through how his hearing went and what the outlook is uh, for a man who's been just absolutely instrumental in architecting America's uh, Indo-Pacific strategy over a very long period of time.
3: Well, it could be a Harvard Business School case study. Um, you know, Kurt shows up, Lale Brennard, his wife, is right behind him. One of his daughters, Coco, is missing school so she can watch and participate in this uh, confirmation process. Um, through the testimony, he has both a senior Democrat and a senior Republican uh, give testimonials on his behalf from the committee, um, which is unusual to get both. Uh, and then you have um, repeatedly throughout Kurt talking about how and I enjoyed having breakfast with you and I enjoyed talking to your staff yesterday and in our extensive meetings this past week. So he did the preparation. It was just a textbook way to get a senior nomination Uh, with bipartisan support. Um, And he did it very diplomatically, which, of course, is you're going to be Deputy Secretary of State, you better be a diplomat. Um, And so even if he didn't agree with somebody, he always sounded like he was agreeing with the members, uh, no matter what the issue was. So uh, transition fuel, no problem. I'm supporting transition fuel. Don't listen to the White House. Um, You know, and and so it was on and on. He just did a a great job at uh, making sure that he is going to be their man in the State Department, first of all, as a liaison with the staff on every issue. So he's got a lot of responsibilities coming if he gets confirmed. But at the same time, he's also going to be anchoring the Indo-Pacific strategy that he's helped to craft for the administration going forward. And while every member, including Senator Risch, had critical things to say about the administration's China policy, uh, nonetheless, Kurt's going to be leading uh, the hardest edge of that China policy inside the, the Biden administration, and he's going to be doing it from the State Department.
0: Uh, We wish him nothing but fair winds and following seas. And on that note, speaking of fair winds and following seas, uh, America's uh, football game, the 124th uh, meeting of the uh, United States Naval Academy at Annapolis and the United States Military Academy at West Point uh, are going to be meeting. Uh, I point out that aside from being our producer and doing canvas ships, uh, Chris is also the co-host of the second sports uh, that covers. So we are somewhat biased on this team. We've got a lot of Navy people represented. Sorry, Army, you're not represented on this, but we're always happy to entertain somebody from West Point um, and with Army Heritage on it. Chris, how's this game uh, going to go meeting in Massachusetts uh, this time?
4: Vago, you covered a lot of issues. Uh, th- this, to me, is the biggest issue of the weekend. How is Navy going to beat <laughs> Army, the ultimate good versus evil, uh, at least for four hours? And then we go back to being bosom uh, oh, oh, buddies. That is, ah, oh, OK. Um,
0: but I see it from yeah. your standpoint. <laughs> and they by, by the they way, share the focused. sentiment.
2: Full disclosure: I am on the board of control of the Naval Academy Athletic Association.
4: Hey, Dove knows where uh, where where to put his loyalty. <laughs> I said this is a Navy
0: team. Army is. I almost feel like I got a plug for Army on this one. But go ahead. How do
4: you think no. the game is going to go? I think it's going to be a close game, as most of them are. Uh, Army comes in uh, after a huge win over Air Force, um, a really good Air Force team, and uh, Army thumped them. So they have a lot of incentive, even more than normal. Um, They have a chance to win the Commander-in-Chief's Trophy. They're a three-point favorite. These games are typically low-scoring, but I I would just finish by saying take four hours, uh, enjoy something that's really fun. Uh, and that will make you feel good, regardless of who wins or loses. This is what's right about college football, maybe the only thing that's right about college football, and, and one of the really great things that's still right about uh, athletics in general.
0: Nobody nobody is stealing signals, and there's a great running game, and it's uh, very exciting. Ah, uh, very exciting to uh, to watch in part because of the passions uh, involved. May the best team win. Uh, what is it? You know, we're we are uh, brothers on every other day except this one. All right, everybody. Thanks so very much for joining us for this extended uh, program. Really appreciate it. Happy Hanukkah uh, to all. Have a terrific uh, weekend uh, and a great weekend. We look forward to having you all back on again next week. And thanks to uh, the audience for their time and a very special thanks uh, to Bell and all of our sponsors for their generous support that makes this uh, and all of our programming uh, possible over the course of the week. We'll see you again on Sunday for uh, the Business Roundtable. Until then, have a great weekend uh, and take care. And we'll see you again soon. And again, happy Hanukkah.